Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is about Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. On the show with me today is Mobile Syrup's telecom and business editor, Rose Bahar. How are you, Rose? Well, I'm not feeling unsane. I guess you could say I'm feeling pretty sane today. We'll later be joined by Mobile Syrup's Igor Bonifacic. In addition to being Mobile Syrup's features editor, Igor is also a talented photographer in his own right, switching between a traditional DSLR and whatever smartphone happens to be in his pocket at the time. He'll help lend some insight into the differences between traditional cameras and smartphone cameras, as well as talk about when we should use which. Later on, I'll be speaking with Nicole Holland, a filmmaker based in Halifax, as well as Christopher Ian Bennett, the executive producer and director of marketing at the Vancouver Film School. Susan Lee Pierce, the Festival Operations Manager for the Toronto Smartphone Film Festival, will also be featured on the show. But first, Rose and I are going to speak a little bit about Unsane in a segment I like to call I'm Not Crazy, I'm Unsane, There's a Difference. Here are some credits. Unsane was directed by Steven Soderbergh. Jonathan Bernstein and James Greer wrote the film's script. The film's music was composed by Thomas Newman, while Steven Soderbergh, credited as Peter Andrews, was also responsible for the film's cinematography. Steven Soderbergh, credited as Mary Ann Bernard, was responsible for editing the whole film together. Quite a bit of Mr. Soderbergh. Unsane stars Claire Foy as Sawyer Valentini, a businesswoman starting a new life in a new city after escaping a stalker from her old life. Troubled by visions of her stalker, Sawyer seeks help from a Victims of Stalkers support group, where she finds herself checked in a psychiatric facility, unable to leave. Stuck in the facility, she learns that her stalker works there as an orderly. Or does she? Rose, I want to start with a simple question. Have you seen Unsane? I have. I just saw it in an extremely small group of people, and um, I loved it. It was equal parts Claire Foy's brilliant performance. So Claire Foy, for those who don't know, she plays the queen in, in The Crown on Netflix, and um, very talented actor, and uh, she brought sort of a really raw intensity to um, to this movie that I think elevated it, even though it was shot on an iPhone. But I liked the story um, because it touched on a really important subject, which is stalking, and particularly men stalking women, uh, which I think paired really well with how it was shot uh, using the iPhone 7. I did find some interesting stats on stalking for Canada. So then I thought I would, uh, you know, rattle off a few because... It's interesting, I think, we don't talk about it very much. I think we talk even less about stalking than we do about um, rape or other sexual assaults. 
Um, and yet, you know, stalking is often the thing that precedes those things. And it's actually just quite important. So in self-reported data that was actually released this year uh, between 2004 and 2014, indicate that the prevalence of stalking decreased actually from 9% to 6% of Canadians, that most victims were women at 62%, while most stalkers were male. And most often victims said the stalking took the form of threats or intimidation against someone else they knew, uh, repeated obscene or silent phone calls, and unwanted emails, texts, or social media messages. Uh, And that's a lot of the stuff that we saw in the movie too. Are there any resources available for individuals who uh, are victims of stalking uh, or or people who might might think that they are, in fact, being stalked? Uh, You know, that's a really good question, and uh, we can uh, put those resources in the outro. All right. Fantastic. Now, of course, you've brought up twice that it's uh, it was filmed on an iPhone 7 Plus, uh, which is sort of the, the quote-unquote gimmick of this movie. Um, and I promise you, listeners, we are going to talk about the iPhone 7 Plus. We're going to drop the iPhone name quite a bit. So if you're uh, averse to hearing about Apple's flagship smartphone, then I promise you this is not going to be an enjoyable podcast. But let's talk a little bit more then about what you said about how she delivered this kind of all-star performance in spite of the fact that the film was shot on an iPhone 7 Plus. I'm just going to call it an iPhone from now on because I I can't keep on repeating 7 plus that's too much that's too much Apple that's fair so why the disclaimer um the disclaimer that the iPhone was used yes precisely well I mean it doesn't look good you know you you watch the movie and you're like yep I can tell this was filmed on an iPhone because it looks like what I might film on my iPhone um so right off the bat you're kind of visually uncomfortable I'd say Uh, And you think, I'm not really sure if I can make it through this entire viewing, not thinking constantly about the fact that I'm watching iPhone footage. I mean, you saw it too, obviously. Did, Did you feel the same way? I absolutely felt the same way. And I have to say, this movie looks absolutely awful. And I... I want to I want to explain why I'm being so hard on it in terms of its visual appearance. It isn't fully because uh, the movie was shot on an iPhone. No, there are great movies that are shot on iPhones. There are great you know photographs shot on an iPhone. Um, we've all seen the commercials, but I think the reason why <laughs> I'm being so hard on it and saying that it looks so bad is because Steven Soderbergh has gone on the record numerous times saying that iPhones are sort of the you know future of filmmaking and that uh, when he when he saw the playback footage. Uh, that he recorded on his on his smartphone he thought to himself my goodness this is this beautiful looking film it looks like the real deal but i got it's not it is not the real deal and i think one of the things that especially showcases how how not the real deal this movie is is like just how how people move and how characters move and the way the ca- the camera moves we are sort of accustomed to this sort of like almost slow motion hollywood movie effect where people don't move like they do in real life um which smartphones capture every single smartphone captures this like real life movement um and you, and you especially see it if you guys don't know what i'm talking about imagine like a blu-ray movie and imagine the way that that characters move in blu-ray movies it, it it's like they're moving really quickly um and that is everywhere in this movie every single time a character moves it's like they're moving in real life every single time the camera moves it's like you know someone picked up a smartphone and just filmed a bunch of people moving it's, it feels real. It feels very intimate. And that's something that I really liked, actually. I began to realize that 
for the type of movie that it was, it fit really perfectly. And I think that was obviously intentional. I mean, this is a movie that is about um, stalking. So it's about somebody gaining entrance to another person's life without their consent. And that's like really what it felt like watching the movie because it felt like you were sort of uh, spying in a sense. Um, And so I, I thought that Though it was very, like, especially the the dynamic range, like the shots with high dynamic range did not turn out well, and there was a lot of indoor shooting, which is not great for any smartphone camera. Even though it looked sort of crappy, I think it fit really well into what the movie was. I wholeheartedly agree with you. The movie looks bad, yes, but what's interesting is that it looks bad in sort of like a unique way. Uh, You brought up the subject of the indoor filming. Uh, Yes, there are a lot of indoor shots, and not only are there a lot of indoor shots, there are a lot of indoor shots that are lit by what look to be fluorescent lights, and not only are there a lot of indoor shots that look to be lit with fluorescent lights, there are a lot of indoor shots that are at night that are lit from a distance by fluorescent lights. But what's weird, and this sort of touches on what you said a little bit earlier, is that the colors work quite well with the scenes that we see on screen. There's a lot of sickly yellows that light up these characters that makes them look like something's off. Um, I don't want to use the phrase sick because I don't want to, I don't want to use that kind of language, uh, but it makes them look, it presents the viewer with this sort of idea that something isn't right in the world. And there's a lot of these very deep blues that, of course, you get when you're filming on a smartphone at night. Uh, But again, it works with the way the film tells its story. There's a lot of times that characters are obscured in shadows. But of course, why are they obscured in shadows? It's not because, you know, Soderbergh couldn't afford a lighting rig. It's because the iPhone can't light (laughs) two people in the dark very well. But again, just the way that the, the scenes are blocked, you'll have what would be, you know, a bad character lit in shadow, which makes sense thematically. You'll have a quote unquote good character lit, like actually, you know, in the light, which which makes them seem good. Oh, you just brought up good versus bad, which I think is a really interesting part of this movie for me, which is that um, the, there's no real good characters, as you kind of alluded to there, the quote unquote good. I mean, Sawyer is the protagonist, but she is really flawed. Like she is violent. She is angry. Uh, and it's not that typical sort of good girl vibe that you'll get from a lot of Hollywood movies where the female protagonist always has to be nice or somewhat relatable in that sense. But I think ultimately it is relatable in that she's angry because she's been stalked. And so she is kind of violent. She's kind of surly. And she's really not that nice to the other patients. But she she doesn't want to be there. She feels that she doesn't belong there. Um, so I thought that was a really cool character choice along with the fact that, you know, we, we already think that she's not relatable and then there's the other, or not relatable, perhaps we already think that she is not a, a nice character that we should necessarily always be rooting for. And then on top of that, there's the questioning of, well, is she really, uh, insane? Is she really, does she really have to be at this mental hospital or not? And that's something that's played with at the beginning quite a bit. Um, what did you think when you when we were at the beginning? Like it, it seemed like there was a lot of room for interpretation. 
So the movie opens with this like stalker footage where uh, you know the 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 camera is in uh, is is obscured by some foliage and it's like we're watching Sawyer get from point A to point B. She's you know getting from home to work, but it's it's like it's like we're you know actually stalking her. So immediately the, you know the film sets us up to to sort of challenge whatever preconceived notions we have about stalking, but also it sets us up to disbelieve or to question whatever we see on screen because we're we as the audience yes we're voyeurs because we're an audience so you know it plays into that cinematic literary kind of distinction but it it's also very clearly saying like someone is watching her is it us is it the audience is it an actual character we don't know so when when eventually she does start seeing the visions of her of her stalker i actually did think to myself that this was going to be a situation where it turns out that either there's there's some sort of disassociative identity or where sawyer can't be trusted which is interesting because of course i've now just said that I can't trust this woman, which is an interesting an interesting theme that also presents itself in the movie. So not only are we being told to distrust this person because she's potentially suffering from some sort of mental illness, but of course we're also being told don't trust this woman. What did you make of that? Oh my gosh, I, I thought it was really interesting and a really admirable thing to tackle. Uh, a lot of reviewers, I looked through the reviews and there was a lot of sort of mentioning of, oh, they're sort of like other stalker movies or it's like other movies set in like, you know, either mental asylums or what we would now call mental health hospitals. But I actually thought that it brought a lot of freshness to the table. It, it brought some new ideas because in fact, when I looked into it, because I had a sneaking suspicion when I exited the theater, that more there were more well-known stalker movies about women stalking men or women stalking other women than there were about men stalking women. And I was right. I looked up uh, kind of the other most well-known stalker movies. And it was interesting to see, like, if you look at Fatal Attraction, Misery, Single White Female, and of course the Beyonce classic Obsessed. Those are all movies where women are either stalking men or other women. But in reality, stalking is disproportionately uh, something that affects women. Um, and it, it's hu a huge issue here in Canada and across like uh, across the world. So, I thought it was it was good that it was addressed in that way and part of the thing that the movie really addressed was the idea that women aren't believed or listened to when they bring up these huge issues, uh, especially when it comes to stalking. Um, for instance, there was the main doctor at mental health hospital who was on the phone when Sawyer came into his office and he was on the phone. He wasn't listening to her. She had to ask him to look her in the eyes. There was a lawyer who just hung up on Sawyer's mother when she was trying to get her out of the mental health hospital. There were a lot of moments where men were either presented as not listening or being predatory. I, I'm sure that that rubbed some people the wrong way, but I thought it was good and I thought it was refreshing to see. I also uh, want to add on that subject of, of the men in the movie. The men are either predatory or they're not listening, or inversely, they're literally talking down to the women, telling them that they know best. And there's an interesting 
there's an interesting scene again like you mentioned between Sawyer and the uh, and I'm assuming the chief of medicine at, at the psychiatric facility and if my memory serves me right it's shot in such a way where we're almost sort of looking up at this man and we're looking down on uh, on Sawyer uh, of course emphasizing that we're elevating the opinion of this man and 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 we're denigrating the opinion I, I say opinion but of course the fact of this woman's life which goes back and plays into what, what you mentioned earlier about how again there's this there's this distrust of women and and there's this sort of inversion of that of that traditional uh, narrative where where the women are bad where the women are evil I thought it was great I also liked um, I also liked the plot piece about the mental institution itself because I you know when you, you the plot basically the plot goes that um, it's an insurance scam you know Sawyer is being held there for a uh, for seven days as long as her Medicare will pay for it as long as her insurance will pay for it um, so I looked it up and I realized that this has been an ongoing story and essentially a lot of the facts that Soderbergh uh, a lot of the things that Soderbergh included in his um, in in the movie actually happened um, if you go and look up the reporting done by uh, BuzzFeed on the subject of United Health Services you'll see that there is that kind of um, there, there's allegations strong allegations made by like hundreds of people including former staff and former inpatients that they were uh, sort of tricked into saying that they had suicidal ideation and then were forcibly made to stay at the hospital for you know periods of up to like 10 days or or that sort of length of time, which of course is is really disturbing and a really great um, kind of basis for a thriller. Uh, I am going to pivot a little bit away from some of the statistics and and sort of bring up the fact that you know we we watched this movie uh, in a movie theater. We watched this movie that was filmed with a smartphone, and we're now moving past the the film itself. Uh, what's interesting to me, of course, is that we were able to get to the point that we're at in this conversation, sort of you know by by minimally acknowledging the fact that this film was recorded, shot, edited, etc. on a smartphone. Uh, in that sense, then. Uh, on the subject of Unsane itself, uh, do you think that we're going to see more movies like this? Do you think that we're going to see, uh, you know, more filmmakers try to adopt this this smartphone style for their work? I think we will. Uh, it's so accessible, and that's what makes it exciting to me. The idea that more people will have the uh, opportunity and and the ability to create movies and films with just their smartphone that's fantastic i mean we've already seen such a a revolution in terms of video content when you look at uh platforms like youtube so i think you know and and people there a lot of the youtubers and people starting out are using smartphones to film their content so i think it was it was bound to happen in terms of larger scale productions um but for now it is, I, I mean, I feel like when we saw this movie, I thought this really fits well for this film. I'm not sure that it will fit well for, for every film. And I can't, I can't see it. You know, it's obviously not going to, you're not going to be shooting the next Avengers movie on a smartphone. Um, so it's definitely going to, it's still going to be a niche thing, I think, even in the future. 
but in spite of the fact that it, it might be a niche thing now and it might continue to be a niche thing for, for a few years into the future, uh, would you say that you were still emotionally and I suppose psychologically affected by the film that you watched? I was. You know, that was the cool part. I watched this, uh, I watched the movie and I at first was bothered by the quality of the iPhone footage and then the plot kicked in and the performances became so raw and beautiful that I totally forgot. I forgot that it was, you know, shot on an iPhone and I I didn't care. Um, I was really engrossed in the movie. That is an amazing, that's an amazing thing to be able to do uh, with just a, a device that everybody has. Like, I think I was, I was really inspired by it actually. And I think that is a perfect segue into our next segment that I like to call, Igor, this photo isn't turning out properly. Can you help? Uh, so, Igor, the long and short of it is that Steven Soderbergh's movie looks like it was shot on an iPhone. But half the time I look at movies on an iPhone, I think to myself, wow, that doesn't look half bad. The same is true for photos taken on an iPhone uh, as well. I'm wondering if you'd be able to explain to our listeners why it is that photos turn out the way they do when they're taken on a smartphone. Why is it that we think smartphone photos look great, but that we also think that photos shot with $700 DSLRs also look great? Should I just chuck my Nikon in the garbage and switch to shooting on an iPhone? Um, so Samir, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited uh, for this new podcast. Um, I think there's two kind of things to think about. And the first is when you're looking at a photograph or a film scene, you're not necessarily looking at it critically. Um, that is to say, when it comes to both photography and film, emotion plays a really major role in whether a scene or a photograph resonates with us. Um, moreover, since uh, you know photographs capture a moment in time, there's a very strong association with memory. Uh, us uh, human beings, for better or worse, we're, we're creatures of nostalgia. Um, so, and what's more, you know, most of us don't actually have the critical tool set with which to examine a photograph or a scene. And the best example of this I can think of is one of my favorite YouTube channels is Every Painting, um, Every Frame of Painting. This is like a fantastic YouTube channel in which um, the creator, and I can't remember his name. Tony Zhu. Yeah, he is, you know, it, it took him years to develop that tool set, right? To be able to tell whether a scene is effective or not. And for most of us, when we look at a photograph or a scene, we can only really say, oh, it's beautiful or it's good or it's bad, right? And, you know, to do it at the speed of a, a movie is like extra challenging, right? Because there's so much going on. Every frame really is a painting, right? And now, like I think about this from my own personal like, perspective, you know, one of my f uh, favorite photographs is uh, one of my friends, Sayuri and I, we're, in, we're sitting on the river in Kyoto, Japan. Um, and if I look at this picture critically, it's not like a really interesting picture, but it's one of the most meaningful pictures in my life because it represents one of like the most fondest memories I have. It's the same with music. You started this uh, podcast with a song from Radiohead. We all come to a song with a different critical or kind of emotional lens. We all come to Radiohead for different reasons, right? And I, there's no denying that Radiohead as a band is one of the most technically and musically competent bands, but none of that would mean anything if 
their music didn't resonate with people. To return to kind of photography and uh, cinematography, we've seen some incredibly technically competent photographs and music, but they don't, or excuse me, films, but they don't mean anything if there's no kind of like story elements and stuff like that. I haven't seen Unseen, but I think like the movie resonated with you, right? Um, so that's one. It's the whole emotional aspect of it. And then there's the kind of technical aspect of it, which is like, man, cameras, like in technology, the most important thing is not whether like something is the best at something. It is whether it is good enough. So much of technology, and especially when te- when it comes to kind of technology from the kind of consumer-facing level is it is much more about like the economics of it, the um, the the feasibility of that technology, right? Cameras at this point in time are absolutely amazing. Whether it is your Nikon DSLR or an iPhone Seven Plus, which is what uh, Steven Soderbergh used to record uh, or to film, this you know like. If we're being really critical about it, your Nikon camera is better than an, uh, an iPhone 7 Plus, right? It's just a matter of like a bigger sensor really is better when it comes to cameras. Like the bigger the camera, in a lot of ways, the better. Um, and there's just no getting around the fact because it really just comes down to uh, physics. Uh, a bigger sensor means bigger pixels. Bigger pixel means uh, the pixels can capture more light. The fact that it can capture more light means that like the scene will be more brightly lit. Uh, a bigger sensor also means higher dynamic range. Um, and what's interesting about this, so if I can get just really technical for a second, when we talk about cameras, one of the main uh, things is something called dynamic range. And that is like, what is like the capability of the camera to capture both the darkest darks and the brightest light uh, brights or brightest whites, excuse me. Uh, the human eye can see about 20 stops of uh, light. Um, and a stop is just a measure of light. We don't really have to get into it. By contrast, like the most expensive cinematography camera, the Ari Alexa, it, this is an $82,000 USD camera. <laughs> it can do 15 stops. Something like my Sony can do something around like 12 stops. And then when you get to like an iPhone, that is like eight stops. <laughs> So yeah, those what I would say is like, one, you know, it's about the emotional resonance of a scene or photograph. Two, like cameras have gotten in recent years so, so good where like, you know, the, if you get down to brass tacks, like a DSLR will take better photos. But at the end of the day, these are all just tools, right? They're tools for capturing a moment in time or a scene and the kind of tools, like the non-technical tools, like composition, those are all skills, right? And those, like, whether you have the best camera in the world or the worst, if you have that skill set, that skill set is going to shine through no matter what. You talked extensively about emotionality, and you also talked a little bit about the technical aspects of, you know, smartphone sensors and smartphone cameras versus DSLR sensors and DSLR cameras, and you you, you sort of touched on skill there at the end. Do you think, then, that one of the reasons why the film resonated so much with Rose and I is because of Steven Soderbergh's skill, the, 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 the years and years of practice that he's gotten from making big budget films and of course i'm assuming you know making films on a smartphone as well 
Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, whether it's shot on an iPhone or uh, shot on, like, the Ari Alexa, which I'll say again is an $82,000 camera, um, what will resonate with you is, you know, like, the things that have always resonated in a movie. It's the reason why Citizen Kane is still considered one of the greatest movies ever created. Certainly, like, does it hold up technically as well as certain films do now no but like there is that kind of age-old tool set there of like a really good story characters that resonate either with you or something some part of your psyche image quality is not something that resonates with people right so i think like what mr sodenberg has shown you is that like it kind of in some way puts this like debate to arrest is like what makes a professional is not the toolkit but rather the skill set if i can just take it on a tangent for a second like you know we've seen a lot about how google is like developing these like uh, tools that will allow like an ai to take good as good photos as like a professional photography but at the end of the day when you think about it like someone still has to point that camera right like someone you still need an eye for it right like because so much of both film and photography it's like it's um it's an art of exclusion right it is about focusing in the frame on a certain part and telling the story in a certain way um and no computer is going to be ever able or algorithm is ever going to be able to do that what this puts to rest is like there will always be a place for the human and human creativity in creating art like unsane so it's it's really again not an issue of of what Soderbergh used to film the film to make the movie it was it was what what he knew it was it was the the human elements of the narrative it was the way the Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Claire Foy delivered her performance. It was the way that it was all packaged together. Like, I don't almost know what else to add to this other than to say, I think you're like totally right. Like, in, um, I mean, I will say, you know, um, one thing to keep in mind is it'd be interesting to see a behind the scenes of that movie because what I'm always reminded of, and there's this great MK HD video on this is like, uh, where he's like, um, so Apple frequently, when they announce a new iPhone, they have this like little snippet where it's like shot on the iPhone, right? And it's this great, beautiful cinematography. And what MKHD kind of warns against is like, someone didn't just take an iPhone and shoot that, right? Like they clearly, one, they're very skilled individual who shot that, but they also had some help in the sense that like, I'm pretty sure like, you know, uh, Steven Soderbergh, one, they definitely had some kind of stabilization on the camera, whether that was a gimbal or something else, like a glide cam, uh, a steady cam or a glide cam. And then two, they probably had like a lens attached to it because I haven't seen the movie, but from looking at the trailer, like 
more or less like it doesn't look like it's at the same focal length the whole time and that's like actually something that's like really important because like just kind of a lens depending on its focal length creates like a completely different look to a scene right so like Michael Bay, I think, is someone who's famous for using like very tight telephoto lenses to create this like very claustrophobic feel to an action. And like the kind of like 28 millimeter focal length that's the equivalent of the iPhone is actually a perfect for uh, cinema. But then like there's moments where you like kind of want like a closer, more cropped in look for dialogue scenes. Um, so I'd really l- like to see how he filmed it because there's clearly very much an artifice to how he did it, right? Like, I imagine, like, he must have prototyped this movie or some kind of move, like, take on this movie many times because you don't just t- pick up an iPhone <laughs> and do this, right? Like, you really have to have an understanding of the tool and its limitations to create an effective work with it, right? So I imagine like Soderbergh has been doing this for a while with the iPhone and like the fact that like the scene couldn't be captured perfectly is probably like really informed his filmmaking, right? Like and really informed how to like block out the scene and stuff. So it's interesting how in that sense like the tool starts to inform the piece of art right like and really trying to build the movie around it so that its weaknesses actually play out as strengths and on that subject of weaknesses playing on strengths i think it's time for our final segment that i like to call it's hard out here for a smartphone filmmaker but it might not be for much longer In the interest of full disclosure, I spoke with Christopher Ian Bennett, Susan Lee Pierce, and Nicole Holland separately. Listen on for those interviews. My name is Nicole Holland. I work in the film industry, and I'm also a filmmaker. The first thing that I shot on a phone was a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. I actually use an LG G5, which is pretty good, but I'm... I'm kind of a Samsung person, and I I think when I'm done with this phone, I'll probably go back to the Samsung because I didn't. There was a few issues with it that uh, I would not recommend using it for. But um, yeah, that was we used the LG G5. I do have a DSLR camera, but we just. I mean, the phone is just. It's the quality is almost not. It's not as quite as good. Like you can't do as much with it or control it as much without add-ons but um it's easy like you just go out and and kind of do it and you don't have to set anything up or or mess around with lenses or well people do use lenses for the cam for their smartphones but we didn't we just did it we were super basic so um yeah that was why we did it and um a big thing about it was we didn't need to involve anyone else it was just the two of us so um you can you can have a really small crew on the simplest of films. You can use, um, you know, you could use any camera to just go out and shoot it, but it it's it's harder to set up and and yeah, going out with your phone just makes everything super simple and quick and easy. It was actually a friend of mine approached me and wanted to make a music video for his band, and he had an idea. And he just asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said yes. And so we just did it because it was it was actually prompted by um, they have a smartphone film festival in Halifax, and so he wanted to do it for that and um, the effort to make a music video for his band. And so that's how it came about. What I love about the phone thing is that 
um, you can kind of just have an idea and just do it because most people have phones now. So you, I mean, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of different aspects of filmmaking, but if you just decide you want to shoot something someday, uh, you can kind of just go out and do it. And I also like what it kind of, what kind of content you can find because there's, I mean, it's interesting that bigger films like Steven Soderbergh is using uh, the phone, but I like that you can kind of discover artists that you wouldn't normally know about because in the past it was more, it was less accessible to regular people. So now you can kind of come across um, some interesting things out there that, that people are making. It wasn't that challenging because we shot outside in daylight and because I do have, we both, uh, my friend that I was shooting with is also a photographer. So we both have ex- had experience with it. And um, I mean, the idea for the video revolved around being outside anyway, but it just, again, when you're shooting with, I mean, natural lighting can be challenging, but uh, we it was the same. It was pretty consistent throughout the day that we were shooting. And that was, yeah, again, we just wanted to do something very simple. So that's why we did it outside. If we had shot inside or in a less I mean, outdoors is not a very controlled environment, but for what we were doing, it it just worked perfectly. So we didn't have to set up any lights or mess around with the flash or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, I still wouldn't, uh, I would still use a phone to do, um, you know, if it was a night shoot or something like that, but uh, cause some cameras are really great in low light as well. And I, I'm kind of a fan in general of natural lighting. And even if it's, um, not natural per se, but the lighting that's already existing in the environment. Um, I'm kind of a fan of that. So I always try to do that if I can. Um, and with the phone, it just made it, yeah, we, we, I guess in a way we planned, we planned it to make it as simple for ourselves as possible. And it kind of, in a way it frees you from all those things, because if you, instead of saying like, this is what I want to shoot, I'm going to have to get all this equipment. What we did was said, this is the equipment we have. We don't want to make it any more complicated than that. So we're going to shoot an idea that works with what we have. So um, I like that about it. And I think it's it's a different way of looking at things, uh, at filmmaking and, and I'm into that way of doing it. I pretty much just use the automatic settings on the, on the phone when I use it because they usually work pretty well. Um, sometimes I don't. I ran into a little bit of trouble with the LG. I don't know if it was just my phone is like a defect or if it's a problem with the camera, but it had a weird glitch where every couple of frames it would change the like um, exposure would change. So we had to kind of try to fix it in editing. But in general, I didn't have to do very much to it. I basically just focus on the editing it together like I didn't really have to think too much about the lighting or anything but again if I wanted to do something more complicated I probably would look into either well shooting it on a different camera or looking into the accessories or whatever like lenses or um, lighting or filters but in general I would say it definitely is easier to shoot on a phone I'm just mostly excited to see what other people come up with honestly and I never would have myself so much thought I think I was kind of like a purist or a snob about film for a while. And then I realized like, it, yeah, it, the, the tools are there. It doesn't matter what you use. Just like try to get out there and make stuff.
Actually, you know what? On a, a really good example of this is my um, a friend that I had that also went to NASCAD. They did a community art project where they, and I think this is something that was kind of like trendy for a while. Um, they gave cameras to kids and just let them go home and shoot whatever, and then and edit it together. And that sort of made me realize, like, you know, we have this idea that in order for something to be valuable as a film or as an art, it has to be done in a certain way. But then you give kids a camera and they don't even know how to use it and they go out and this, what they come back with is just unreal sometimes. And the stories that they're telling, um, you know, that's important too. And it's not, so it's not about the, the, the medium that you're using. It's the way that you're using it. Um, and I think we've, it's almost an elitist thing. Like I think we've devalued certain stories because they're not told in the way that we think that they should be. So yeah, I think that honestly might be what really made me let go of, of all of that and see like, yeah. And, and partially for myself, just doing it. Like when I saw, Oh, you know, anyone can go out and do this. It means I can do it too. Cause you get down on yourself and you think like everything has to be perfect, but the more you just do things, even if they aren't good, even if they suck, it's like, well, I did it. So I, you know, if I keep doing it, it will get better eventually. So yeah, it kind of, I always kind of had that idea in theory, but when you actually go out and do it, it kind of starts to make more sense. My name is Christopher Ian Bennett. I'm the executive producer and I'm the head of marketing at the Vancouver Film School. I think first and foremost, this is one of the most important things to happen to the film and television medium uh, in 50 years. You know, probably not since um, we literally moved from film to digital, but now you've got this mobile phone and the mobile phone all of a sudden breaks onto the scene, um, probably beginning with maybe the iPhone 7, although you could argue you could have probably done it before then, but certainly with the iPhone 7, I know we're now up to an iPhone 8 and an iPhone X and the equivalents on, on Android devices with the, the Samsung Galaxies, and you're shooting in 4K. And you're shooting in 4K and 4K on a smartphone and 4K on a red weapon, you can't tell the difference. 4K is 4K. So it's an equalizer. But what it does, it changes the game in terms of now that the storytelling uh, instrument is equalized and it's, and, it's, and it's the same, whether you're a big studio in Hollywood or you're a young you know, male or female you know, starry-eyed, dreaming future filmmaker, you can go out and begin to focus on the storytelling. You don't necessarily have to, uh, you don't have to worry anymore that what you put together will look um, to the same standard as something at, at a big studio level. Now you need to focus on, okay, what's the story? How am I shooting it? Um, you know, all the elements, who are the actors? What's the writing like? Um, and the shot selection is going to be equally as important. And one of the things that we teach in our, our award-winning film and television program, of course, is understanding the different kinds of shots. And it's an equalizer because it doesn't matter on the camera anymore. But, it, but it's important to understand the tights and the wides and the zoom and the scroll and the fade and the pan and all those elements. And what's exciting is I think it's more accessible both economically and socially or culturally with, through a smartphone that now you've got this emergence of, you know, there's proof of it right there, what they're doing in Halifax or Toronto and all these other incredibly exciting, you know, smartphone film festivals, because we can jump right to the queue and, and learn from storytellers and see and be entertained by storytellers. We don't have to wait till they've 
till they've, you know, they've turned, you know, 30 and they got their first job and finally a studio or a company gave them a chance. They're taking those chances. I think the first thing is that it's, it's revolutionary and it's, and it's a game changer right now. And I'm excited by it. You would be surprised what you don't need to make a movie. However, with an asterisk there, what's important is less about all the things you need and rather how to use the things that you, you, you have to have. There's the things you're going to want to use in, in making a, a film or, or, or producing and telling a great story. And then there's going to be the things you need. And part of that is a real understanding. You know, once you eliminate the camera, or in this case, if we're talking about whether it's a, a, a 4K smartphone or, you know, the, the Red Weapon or the FS7, a high-end digital, you know, camera, you need to understand lighting. So, so critical. You know, everything that Steven Soderbergh is achieving right now um, with his new with his new horror piece is going to blow people away. And a lot of people are going to go, I can't believe he did that on a smartphone. That's not so exciting. When you really think about it, he's shooting it in 4K and 4K is 4K. Um, the human eye can't even distinguish anything higher than 5K. And even then between four and five, it's, it's going to be difficult. Like we're getting to the point where the technology far surpasses the capability of even human biology. So we're in a good place with the camera. But half of that battle is audio and how that audio is properly synchronized and connecting with those, those cameras and, and then those shots that you're shooting and the lighting, everything that he's going to achieve that's going to blow people away. I would, I would think, having not seen it yet, but having read a bit about it, watched the trailer and, 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 and seen what he said on, you know, talking about it to the press. And, and I, I think by his own admission, uh, he would say the lighting is so critical. So, you know, somebody who, you know, we, we aren't threatened by that at Vancouver Film School. We are excited by it because it brings more future filmmakers to us where once we talk about the shot selection, you got to talk about the lighting. you got to talk about the audio. you got to talk about the writing itself and how to move along at the fast-paced um, nature of any exciting film. It, it, it's not, it's, it, you'd be surprised how much you don't need, but what you do need is a really a uh, smart grasp, someone who understands audio, somebody who understands lighting, um, and a great storyteller behind the camera that can work with your talent in front of the camera to bring it together. I don't know if we're losing anything. I think we are gaining something. There's always the chance that, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't have to learn about lighting or doesn't want to or have to learn about audio and how important those two elements, among others, are to, to, to creating a great film or telling a great story because they can kind of jump right to it now with this great technology in a smartphone, you run the risk of just drowning and, and more stuff that's not so great. But um, that's probably, you know, people worried about that in the era of social media. Is, is that going to drown out good journalism? A little, but I think it just allows good journalism and good press to, to still rise to the top and, and be, be obvious. And I think that's, um, that's a small price to pay for how exciting it is to allow people to get very excited about filmmaking and storytelling and what it will do and, and the new businesses that it's created. I think it's a very, very good time for, to be in the world of, of storytelling, right? The world, like there's going to be what 3.5 billion smartphones active in the world by the end of this year, statistically, you know, that's, that's a fact half over half the population is going to have a screen in their pocket, let alone the potential for it to be a, a storytelling or a filmmaking tool or instrument. It's also a screen where people will consume 
content, all kinds of content. There's, you know, the world is right now never been starving more for content. And I would argue good content is what we're most hungry for. And so this is a really exciting time. You wouldn't normally say there's a shortage of filmmakers and storytellers out there, but we believe that at Vancouver Film School and we've been proving it for 30 years and we've seen a real interest and uptick recently as a result of that. So I think it's very, very promising and hopefully it inspires, you know, little boys and little girls to want to, to go and try this and make a real career out of it now where they don't have to just think it's a, a one in a million shot like Steven Spielberg. This is, this is truly and really the, one of the most accessible and exciting career choices they could ever make as a result of this smartphone revolution. I'm excited for Soderbergh's piece to get out there and everyone to see it and um, to be hopefully inspired and we see more and more of that stuff. My first name is Susan. Last name is Lee Pierce. And my title here is I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of TSSS, and I am currently uh, working here as a festival manager. My partner, uh, Mingu, and I started uh, TSSS uh, seven years ago, um, and uh, we actually started out as uh, in a different name. Um, and the reason for that was because Mingu actually operates um, his own production company here in Toronto, and um, it's uh, dedicated for the Korean-Canadian community here in the GTA. Um, so what he does is he produces Korean language programming on Omni TV. Um, and um, so when we started uh, exploring ideas of uh, marketing the company and trying to get the community to be involved a bit more um, with um, videos and things like that, we thought um, we needed some ways to um, find... Um, something easy so that people can just, you know, have with them and then so they can um, engage with it um, right away and then so that it will help us to um, create a, uh, an event that uh, the community would just come and have fun with. And so that was where the idea of um, Mingu saying, how about we do a smartphone film festival? Uh, we know, knew that there were uh, one or two um, mobile film festivals already um, that was that was already running. Uh, there's one in the United States. And then there was one in South Korea. And so we thought we would uh, take on sort of a similar, um, I guess, idea of uh, shooting films with a smartphone and then being able to showcase it to uh, the community members here in Toronto. Like the first three years, it was sort of like a tr there, there were a lot of trial and errors to see um, where we were going to go with this. And then what we realized was um, the first couple of years we, uh, we did this, we we really wanted to have the Korean Canadians um, being you know emerge into something that more um, you know innovative and and something that people can have fun with together. And then we noticed that a lot of the submissions that we were getting um, from for this festival, we were getting a lot of international film fest, uh, film submissions, um, not from Canada and the United States, but from other places around the world. And then we're like, okay, well, there's something here that we're we've started, and um, we're not sure how these um, filmmakers are finding out about us. But I'm guessing they just searched about um, smartphone films, and um, they reached our website and noticed that we were, um, you know, we were accepting film submissions. And so I think that's how people started to sort of um, get about us, uh, to know about us at the time. And then so the first two years was a little bit more local in the GTA area, and then finally the third year we noticed. Um, um, a fair amount of international films coming in, even if we didn't mean to make it open to international base, that we started getting films from, like, Venezuela and Spain and, um, like, France. <laughs> and we're like, okay, this is really interesting. 
Um, and then so finally that year, we decided that we we're going to change our name and say, well, maybe we should just uh, remove this from the company and see um, the, if if the festival could stand alone as um, as any other film festivals in, in Toronto and, and around the world. And so we um, split it into a, a completely different section um, or, or organization altogether. And then we came up with the name Toronto Smartphone Film Festival. Um, sort of, it goes along with other, <laughs> I guess, uh, famous film festivals uh, in Toronto and as well as around the world. So we just thought we were, um, well, we didn't see anyone that was doing a smartphone film festival in, in Canada. So we thought, okay, we'll be the first one. Why not? And then, um, and then that's when we started really to promote for TSFF. Um, that was three years in from the first year that we did it. So the first five uh, full years of our festival, all of our submissions were uh, were free of charge. So we didn't we weren't receiving um, submission fees at all for the submissions. And so finally, on our sixth year, which was last year, that's where we started to apply submission fees of ten dollars. And so we did see we did see that um, when we had free submissions uh, the previous year before that. Uh, we were getting like 250 submissions um, from like literally 50 different countries around the world. And last year, um, the fact that we actually applied the fees in for the first time, I believe we had around 100 and 120-ish. And this year, I think it's very similar to last year. So for for our festival, uh, from the like right from the bat from the get go, we didn't want to have any restrictions on the on the actual smartphone that people were using. And so we made it open to any any type of smartphones and even tablets, because I know that tablets work very similar to uh, phones. So our submissions um, criteria are, first of all, it has to be 10 minutes or, uh, or shorter. So they ha- all have to be sh- a short film. And um, it could, like I said, it could be used on any, any smartphone to shoot the actual film. And... Um, in terms of genre, it could be any genre. So we do accept music videos if that if that's what they wanted to make. Um, so we've had everything from um, documentaries to experimental to animation, uh, even um, stop motion. Like we had everything like that you could think of. And when when it comes to shooting with smartphones, um, now we had a um, few occasions where uh, I think it was a couple of times in the first couple of years that we actually ran this, um, that there was um, a filmmaker that tried to submit a DSLR film into our festival and um, and didn't tell us it was on a DSLR. So what we started doing was we actually started asking for behind-the-scenes pictures and raw footage of their, uh, of, uh, of their film. So um, we don't have to have all the entire film, uh, the raw footage, but we expect to have at least 30, 30 seconds uh, non-stop, non-ed- like non-edited version of their raw footage, and then also um, they have to have behind-the-scenes uh, photos of them actually shooting the, the scenes that they use in the film. And so we're, we're looking, we're actually already looking forward to our 10-year ten, ten anniversary, um, which is only now three years away. So um, after this year, uh, we're going to be start planning for our next year and then um, the ninth year and then the tenth year um, that's coming up ahead. So we're, we're just trying to get different ideas to see uh, where we should be headed in the, in the, next, 30, uh, in the, in the next three years. Um, and then by the time it is our tenth year, I mean, what's next for, for smartphones? Um, we're trying to figure that out. Um, to see what what other things can smartphones provide our filmmakers um, and our festival to 
to be able to, um, you know, expose their um, talent and expose their um, the work that they're doing. And because more and more people are experimenting on smartphones, we, we feel that it's important for us to keep up keep us updated of all the different technology and what um, and what social media is doing with uh, smartphones um, continuously. That's changing. Um, and so, yeah, so we're hoping to expand. We're hoping to um, connect to different, uh, more and more smartphone uh, or mobile film, make, uh, film festivals around the world. And um, I can tell you that when we first started, we were the, uh, apparently the fourth festival that started in, in, the, in the entire world. And then now there are, like, one almost in every large city of, of different countries. And so we would like to really connect with different um, film festivals um, that have the same sort of um, vision in mind and uh, so that we can uh, have a really a global sense of uh, a community where filmmakers can, you know, network and um, share each other's talents and share each other's work and, and being able to work for each other. And it will, it will, I think it will create a great um, synergy, I think, for um, for artists and as well as for, for film festivals that, uh, for, in terms of running the actual festival. I would like to see more and more, um, um, I mean, smartphone carriers, smartphone companies, um, um, to sort of realize that, you know, smartphone filmmaking is becoming a thing, <laughs> um, and it is becoming, um, it's growing, and, and we're seeing that a lot, and uh, I'm hoping that they would sort of um, come on board with not just our festival, but with different uh, festivals around the world, and, and see the value in smartphone films. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, Syrupcast, is back this week. You can find it on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and pretty much every podcast platform out there. Igor, Rose, where can our listeners find you? I'm at Igor Bonifacic. That's I-G-O-R-B-O-N-I-F-A-C-I-C at Twitter. And then if you want to look at my photography, I'm at Kodochrome. That's K-O-D-O-C-H-R-O-M-E. And, of course, we can find you on the Syrupcast. The Syrupcast and mobilesyrup.com. You can find me at Rose Bahar on Twitter. Bahar is spelled B-E-H-A-R. You can also find me at mobilesyrup.com, where I write things from time to time. And I'd like to shout out something that we said earlier in the show. If you are a a victim of stalking, um, some resources that you can find in Canada are victimsofviolence.on.ca. That's in Ontario. Uh, The YWCA also has resources. uh, And the Canadian Resource Center for Victims of Crime, which is crcvc.ca. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. You can find me at Samir Chabra 94 on Twitter. You can find Mobile Syrup at mobilesyrup.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Mobile Syrup. Thank you for tuning in. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 